Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Mindset Podcast, where we share things of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 72. And this week, it's Terry's turn to share something. What have you got for us today, Terry? Well, Daisy, this week, I wanted to share with you an episode of The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson, episode 509. Just wait till we get to that episode, <laughs> Daisy. And it's called The Surprising Science of Anxiety and Making Good Anxiety Work for You with his guest, Dr. Wendy Suzuki. So in this episode, they talked about anxiety clearly. And really kind of like the episode when you and I were talking about stress, it's the idea of how to use anxiety more as helpful information rather than being overwhelmed and held back by it. And I thought it was interesting, a couple of facts that he shared at the beginning is that nearly a third of Americans are diagnosed with an an anxiety disorder. And I think oftentimes Um, people don't realize how prevalent something is when they're struggling with it. Mm. They think they're the only one or, you know. So when I was a therapist, people would say, I just can't believe I'm having this. What is it? And I would talk about anxiety and they thought no one had it. I said, oh, lots of people have it. Another interesting fact I found in listening to this is that in information about death rates with COVID, The second leading cause of death related to COVID is anxiety and fear. Really? And so if you think about how much around the world, how much more anxiety and fear people are dealing with now because of COVID, it's really concerning. Mm. So they talked a little bit about just kind of defining anxiety. And Dr. Suzuki talked about it. Really, it's worry about an imminent possible event or uncertainty. And many of us have a lot of anxiety related to uncertainty. We can't even identify, you know, a a particular event that we're fearing or Mm. dreading, but uncertainty is probably the cause for a lot of us in our anxiety. She talked then about the idea that anxiety really, it stems from our stress response system. And you and I talked about this with the Kelly McGonigal episode, but that system in our brain is really, it's evolved to protect us. It's a really important survival strategy. And so they talked about this, Kelly McGonigal talked about it in her book, and you've talked about it in an episode about depression, how our brains that we're using now were developed to function in a very different environment. And now we have kind of chronic input of stressors that you know, ancestrally, we didn't have a lion jumped out, you responded to that, but then you could go right back to what you were doing, because you didn't have kind of chronic things. That seems to be the overriding theme that comes Mm -hmm. through over and over again with all of these things. Mm -hmm. It's the problem of it being chronic as opposed to acute. And so, you know, the concept that this isn't brand new, our ancestors had the same stress response system. They just didn't have the chronic input that kept us in that anxious state. So the anxiety, as I said, can be related to real imminent threats, things that are actually going to happen or are coming upon you, 
as well as perceived threats or concerns. And this is where, again, a lot of us struggle with perceived threats that create a lot of our anxiety. So to frame up their whole discussion, really, they talked about how we can use our anxiety to be a good self-help tool. And we can learn to decrease our stress and therefore kind of decrease our anxiety, but based on certain factors and certain strategies and skills. And one of the things they discussed is just the idea of checking in with yourself when you're feeling anxious, what can it tell us? What message could I be pulling from this? So let's say, for example, I'm driving and I get anxious when I'm driving. The question of, you know, what is this telling me? The most effective answer isn't for me to say, it's telling me I hate driving and I shouldn't ever do this again because (laughs) I'm going to have to keep driving if I want to go places. So instead that I can really dig into what is the anxiety stemming from? I'm running late and I'm nervous to get there late. Okay, well, that's a really powerful tool. Um, Maybe next time I will leave earlier or, you know, I can do something differently. But one of the things that Dr. Suzuki highlighted is anxiety can give us important information and remind us about our values and what we need and what is important to us. Because we don't really get anxious if it's not something that is about a need or a value. Mm. So it's, it's just helpful information in that way. They then transitioned into talking a little bit more about the resilience. How do we deal with anxiety? How do we help ourselves to be more resilient? And she described how really resilience is built on our knowledge of positive experiences. So for example, I've gotten to the airport late before. Everything was fine. I got on my plane. This will be fine. So I can use that past experience to help me be more resilient in the current stressor. But she also talked about the fact that many of us would like to stay just in the positive feelings. We want things to just always be fun and nice and and feel good. And she said, we really do need the contrast of positive and negative experiences and emotions. And the more we can look at those as feedback rather than, you know, life is about these negative things and positive things versus life is about learning and growing. And so these positive and negative experiences and feelings help me to continue to learn. So they then talked about what things does she kind of study and know about um, how do we help with our resilience? How can we help make ourselves more resilient to the negative effects of anxiety? And one of the first things she talked about is BDNF. And this stands for Brain Drive Neurotropic Factor. It's a a neurochemical, and the power of it is that it helps us make brand new brain cells, Hmm. particularly in the hippocampus, which is the part of our brain that integrates information and creates our memories. And she also talked about how our, our creation of our memories is also what makes our personality unique. You and I have different memories, which create how we see the world and how we experience things and how we think. And so this process is really important. She also mentioned that these new brain cells are really important because newly created brain cells 
are integrated into our memory circuits more easily than our old brain cells that we've had all along. So again, this is part of the whole thing about neuroplasticity, that our brains do grow and change. And I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whenever, we didn't know that. We thought once you had the brain cells, that's all you had. Mm -hmm. But we do create new ones, and they're actually effective. So somebody might think, well, how do I get more BDNF then? That sounds really important. (laughs) Well, I do. You see, I always ask those questions. Wait, wait. I was just about to tell you that. (laughs) Let me tell you. (laughs) So realistically, the best way to increase BDNF is physical exercise. So go back to what, episode two, maybe, or three, one. Kelly McGonagall again. (laughs) And aerobic exercise is particularly useful for BDNF. Now, she really emphasized, though, it doesn't mean you have to become a long-distance runner. Even just a brisk walk, walking up and down a flight of stairs, something that gets your heart rate up. Aerobic exercise is what helps us create or have more BDNF. Yes, I know I've, I've heard it described as because people often so you know what do you mean by aerobic exercise what have I got to do to be doing aerobic exercise and I can remember somebody describing it as being a little bit out of breath so you can't hold a conversation with somebody else Mm -hmm. so you know think about it if you're trying to walk briskly up a hill or something Mm -hmm. and you know your breathing might be a bit labored you might be Mm -hmm. focusing on nasal breathing after listening to James Nestor but the thought of trying to have a conversation with somebody at the same Mm -hmm. time is just a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where you're getting into aerobic Mm -hmm. exercise then, aren't you? I always think of it this way too, though this gets a little more complicated into the science that I don't really understand. The difference between aerobic and anaerobic. Anaerobic means it's not using oxygen at the time, Mm -hmm. or you're not taking in oxygen or I don't even really understand. But yes, I think that's a great way to describe it. It's something that gets you breathing a little more heavily, get your heart rate up a little bit. So for example, this would not be using bands for resistance training. Although that's great exercise, that isn't as helpful in in increasing your BDNF. She then also talked about it. And I liked this analogy that she used. She said, So if you think about when you're active, when you're doing something, going for a brisk walk or doing something active, you're providing a bubble bath of neurochemicals to your brain. (laughs) And these these are the proteins that your brain needs. So things like BDNF, dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. And we all, you know, we, we know, we hear enough about dopamine and serotonin, but these things are more readily available for our brain because we're doing exercise. They also talked about another one that I don't know enough about, but they mentioned another one is called NPY, which is neuropeptide Y. And this one is particularly, this protein for the brain is particularly linked to resilience. The challenge is right now, we don't actually know much about how to increase it in the brain, but those people who have it more available and go through really stressful events like soldiers in you know battle, they see a difference in their resilience and their outcomes based on, on this protein. Did they talk about how long 
you need to do that aerobic exercise? Does it matter? You know, you hear often about, oh, to get the benefits of doing that, you need to do at least 15 minutes a day or half an hour a day. Or, you know, it's important that you spend a minimum of X amount of time to get the benefits. Did they talk about that or did it not really matter? She didn't go into those details at all as far as when do you make enough of it or does it have diminished returns if you exercise for three hours versus one hour. So I don't know those details, just the importance of doing physical activity. Right. Um, so then they kind of switched gears a little bit and talked about characteristics of people or things that you can kind of note in people that are correlated to increased resilience to anxiety. They talked about the growth mindset, which you and I have talked about before. She described how using a growth mindset is key to helping us turn anxiety into helpful information, not just a, a stressor that we want to get rid of or something we want to avoid. So being able to recognize there's a message in here. What do I need to learn? I can get through this. And I think this is really important. I don't know if you have many people who say things like this to you, but I know as a therapist, I did a lot. When people had gone through a series of really stressful things or even traumas in their life, and they would say, I can't do that again. Mm. Like, I would not be able to survive it if that stressor happened mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Or I can't take one more stressor right now. This, to me, is really damaging because part of what we do is we build our resilience knowing that we've gotten through difficult things. But because it seems so unbearable at the time, what we start telling ourselves or other people is, I can't do that again. I don't have what it would take to live through that again. And I think this is a really concerning message that I would encourage people to really work to not say versus knowing I have gotten through every difficult thing in my life and I will continue. I don't need to name what all of them are going to be, but to remind myself I have experienced and survived difficult things, and that gives me strength to keep doing that. So I think this mindset piece here is really important. It's a very fine line, isn't it? And it shows the importance of language. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking of examples where I've, I'm sure I've said that. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, the move from France to here. It was a decidedly unenjoyable experience. And I would not want to do it again. Mm -hmm. But having done it, I know I could do it again. Mm -hmm. It's quite subtle, really. Mm -hmm. But a few changes in words, you know, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't want to do it again. I wouldn't choose to. Yeah. But I know I could because you've got that experience of having been able to do it. Absolutely. However unpleasant it might have been. <laughs> and as you said, the reality is I would like to never experience that again. Mm. And I will make choices maybe that help me avoid it. But sometimes there are things that we can't avoid. But if we're telling ourselves, I can't go through that again. Let's say I live through a tornado and I say, I can't survive another tornado that's putting me in a pretty vulnerable place to be giving that message to my brain. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm, mm. Instead, like that was really rough and I learned a lot from it. I know how to do tornadoes now. Um, <laughs> so another factor of people that um, is noted in people who have more resilience for anxiety is they have social connections. And 
social connections are a really important way to increase our resilience. They give us, you know, positive chemical responses by being socially connected. Um, they help us process things, even if we don't talk about the stressors, just having human connection is so important. This caused them to go into a little bit of a tangent here, but they're pretty connected to each other and they just had some really interesting conversations. She said that they were talking about COVID and how this got even more complicated with COVID because many people have been more isolated and less able to be as connected physically. And she said, and didn't know this, maybe you knew this, that the UK has a minister of loneliness. Hmm, I didn't know that. Their job is really working on this epidemic of loneliness. Again, they went through just the benefits of having social connections. But I think one of the important things to clarify is she said, you know, it doesn't mean you have to spend all your time with this person or become best friends. These can be neighbors, they can be colleagues, they can be family members. But the point is to have the social connection and find the positive in it. So when you say hello to your neighbors, smile, wish them well. That is getting certain chemicals active in your body versus, oh, bugger, that guy's out there again, you know, that that is not the social connection that's going to be helpful in our resilience, but finding the positive in our social connections. Sean Stevenson then talked about prior to the pandemic. So this was even before COVID began, the former Surgeon General of the United States, his office contacted Sean to talk about something and the Surgeon General at the time had been doing some writing. He said that loneliness was the most threatening health issue in the United States. And this was before we went into more social isolation. So super important topic. Another characteristic of people that they said they find better rates of resilience or more resilience is humor. It's a sign of strength that we can kind of take things and turn them around a little bit. It's a connecting thing, enjoying humor, sharing humor. It's contagious. Sometimes you might experience it. You see someone laughing and you don't even know what they're laughing about, but it just kind of makes you laugh. Mm. So humor is a, a factor that seems very connected with resilience. So she mentioned that humor really helps us to learn from things. And part of what it encourages us to do is to be able to allow ourselves to fail. That if we can say, okay, well, that didn't work, but you know, at least I know not to put that knife in that socket again. <laughs> you know, we, we, we learn and we can, we can kind of poke at it a little bit. Um, but that's actually a good um, way to use that opportunity to learn. She also talked then about the growth mindset in that it gives us flexibility in how to be creative for solutions. So a fixed mindset would say, there's nothing I can do. And I've caught myself saying that when I feel overwhelmed by something. Mm. There's nothing I can do about it. I've tried this. I can't do this. So I'm done. If we have a growth mindset that says there are solutions here, what would help me in this situation? Maybe I can't solve it right now, but what would help me? How would this go better right now? So something like that. But creativity is a factor 
that is tied with resilience, our ability to see possibilities and create solutions. She also talked about the fact that some of our biggest challenges are what spawn our greatest creative endeavors. And you can go back and look at, you know, composers or artists that sometimes their greatest skill and talent that they share now comes from their means of compensating for something that they couldn't do. You know, if they couldn't speak well without stuttering, maybe they became fantastic singers. Mm. And so oftentimes those challenges that would cause a lot of anxiety for us, we can use those to be creative and find new talents. She then talked about one concrete tool. And so far I'm realizing as I'm sharing this that there weren't a lot of concrete takeaways from this, but for me, just interesting thoughts for me to be thinking about how I do things and how I want to approach things. But she did talk about one tool of how we can manage anxiety differently. So when we're heading into or are in a anxiety-provoking situation, we can do this technique that she called joy conditioning. And she said to think of a favorite memory, one that brings really positive feelings, joy, love, connection, fun, and especially one that is connected with an olfactory sensation. Because our sense of scent and our memory are so closely linked There's only one synapse between the olfactory bulb and the hippocampus. So we make those memories very quickly and they're they're long lasting. I always used to joke about this, but I still remember if you asked me about seventh grade science, Mm -hmm. my first thought would be dry idea deodorant (laughs) because that was the deodorant I wore at the time. And I remember one day walking into science class and I could smell my own deodorant. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think of when I think of science class. So- Our sense of scent is very linked to memories very quickly and easily. So what you would do then is you would think of this memory and get as in touch with it as you can and kind of relive it because that's going to take you out of that anxious place that you're in in that moment. So let's say, for example, I'm heading into a meeting that I'm very concerned about the outcome. Maybe it's a job interview and I'm nervous about the questions that they're going to ask and other things. Well, I can bring up this memory of this great time when my family was at the beach and I could smell the ocean. It's just going to bring a sense of calming to me so that I then can be better able to respond in that moment. The other thing she did talk about as far as some specifics, but they're not huge new ideas that anyone wouldn't already be doing, but I think it's a good reminder. If we're anxious about the uncertainty of what's coming. So let's say, for example, I'm on your podcast and you're going to ask me at the end, Terry, what is your top tip? (laughs) In that moment, I get anxious or maybe I'm a guest and I get anxious going into it. Like, well, what will Daisy ask me? How will I know? What will I answer? So one way to mitigate the negative impact of anxiety is to do some pre-planning. Well, I can think of all the things that Daisy might ask. And that way, when she asks, I feel comfortable. I know I have a a repertoire of thoughts that I can pull from. So there are ways that we can kind of prepare ourselves 
knowing that we have the ability to get through a difficult situation. We can use this joy conditioning to bring back a memory. I think of that too when you think of a lot of work around trauma and things we talk about finding your safe place. Mm. You know, maybe it was sitting at your grandmother's kitchen table when she was baking cookies. That that just feels so safe and loving. So in a stressful moment or a, a moment when you're feeling a bit uncertain about things, what a great memory to bring up. That smell of the cookies, grandma's grabbing them out of the oven, you know, pouring you a glass of milk. Again, how much that can help us just alleviate that stress response in, in that moment. So as I said, there weren't, you know, five tips or six things you can go do, but for me, it was helpful just to hear the importance of mindset. There are some specific strategies, the importance of exercise. She also emphasized the importance of mindfulness meditation. And people, I think, get hung up on doing meditation properly. And Mm -hmm. her point was, it's just the act of doing it. It's the act of what it causes your brain to do while you're, a thought comes to you and then you're letting that thought go. And another one, the, even the transition between thoughts is a helpful thing at that time. So really emphasize the importance of that as well. I think it's very interesting and it's, it's really bringing together a lot of things that we've spoken about before that we speak about often, you know, things like reframing, things like the, the different kind of energy and openness you get from curiosity and creativity Mm -hmm. and um, thinking about challenges and solutions and growth mindset it's very expansive isn't it Mm -hmm. rather than this closed I can't do that it's just that that fixed closed and you can feel it Mm -hmm. you know drawing in And it's the same with, as you were talking about, with humor and smiling and laughter. I've always found it a good way if I've been feeling miserable. And on the reverse, I don't tend to watch things that are going to make me feel miserable or are going to make me cry. Because just the act of crying, even if it's just watching, you know, something on TV that's enjoyable to watch... When I start going through that process of crying, you know, things happen in my face and it makes my face ache and it makes me feel horrible. But the opposite of that is if you watch something lighthearted and something that makes you laugh, even though you are not laughing inside or you do not feel like laughing, you feel miserable as hell. If you watch something that just makes you laugh, even isn't there something in this when they say that if you're feeling miserable, you just smile, smile. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like smiling. I'm not happy. But just the act mm-hmm. of smiling lifts your mood a little bit. I think it's related to oxytocin. Mm. Just that movement of those facial muscles. And I love that visual of the bubble bath for your brain. Mm-hmm. I thought that's great. And I wonder, you know, I guess that's what's going on when you you feel good when you do a certain kind of exercise. Mm-hmm. And it can be difficult. It's a bit like we were talking over on another podcast (laughs) with the Keto Woman episode that we recorded recently about embracing discomfort, but having ways of getting through the uncomfortable bit to get to the good bit the other side. 
And that's where you build on that experience and build on those memories, isn't it? Absolutely. Remembering that bubble bath for your brain feeling Mm -hmm. that you get when you do that type of exercise that you really don't feel like doing in the moment. But it's it's bringing all these things back, like you were saying, And, and particularly if you can add a sense of smell to that as well. And I think anytime you and I talk about something like a episode that we're you know, sharing. I always think that there are things that can be done in the moment and things that can be done for preventative, more proactive. Mm. And so I think exercise is a great example. Sometimes it helps in the moment. You can feel it in the moment. But what it also does is it helps with future need for that chemical response. So it, it helps you create the environment in your brain that will make you more resilient to things in the future. So I think for me, it's important to remember, it might not feel good when I'm doing it, but it will help things feel better beyond that. Mm. Yeah, and I like what you said about checking in with those Mm -hmm. feelings and listening to what they've got to tell you. One of these days I'll find a way of, talking about the IFS experience that I had in counseling because so many times you're saying something and it makes me Mm -hmm. think of that. I'm actually reading his latest book at the moment. So that might be my way in. But that's one of the biggest things. That's one of the biggest messages that comes from that system, the IFS internal family system way of um, therapy basically but it's listening to what your parts the parts of you are telling you listening Mm -hmm. to what they're saying and really listening giving them you know giving them um, their say letting them speak up because they do all have a message for you and they're Mm -hmm. all trying to protect you in their own way just have to learn to listen not judge not try to push them away. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And if you go in with it thinking there's a message here, there's something for this emotion that I'm not particularly enjoying (laughs) the experience of, but if you approach it with that expansive curiosity, growth mindset, what is the message in here? Because there is one in there somewhere and it's my job to try and find it. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to be working on creating more bubble baths for my brain because I do quite a bit of moving around these days, but I do not do enough of moving around vigorously enough to call it aerobic exercise. So that's the thing I think that needs to come to the top of my list. Maybe we should each go for a walk now, Daisy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, funnily enough, I was thinking about that. So I might just do that. I'm sure the dogs will be very happy about the idea. Yeah, very good. I hope that people are able to just pull some kind of thoughts from this that are helpful to them in not seeing anxiety as something that is kind of the enemy that you have to get rid of or push away from but instead to really embrace it, that we can learn things from it and we can continue to build our resilience to it by you know, being more aware of these other pieces. So Sooner or later, we're going to work our way down all the list of so-called negative emotions and find a way of reframing them into something useful. That's right. <laughs> 
Well, I hope you and everyone at home has a very wonderful week. Take good care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.